You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hello, I'm Mirella Amato. Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. This season, we examine the impact COVID has had on every aspect of our food system, all the way from farm to table. We'll look at how things have changed and try to untangle what's going on behind the scenes so that we can strengthen our connection to our food. In this episode, sovereignty and flexibility. We're talking food security. Hi, Marilla. How are you? I'm well. I'm well today. And yourself? Nice. I'm also well. Uh, today's a bit of a calm, relaxed day. and uh, I'm into that. Oh, it must be in the stars. I like it. I like it. Let's take advantage of it where we can get it, right? Absolutely. So tell me, what was the last thing you ate? Oh, the last thing I ate was in a baking experiment. My mother is visiting me and she Mm -hmm. arrived with some recipes that she wanted to test with her chefy daughter. And so we made these uh, St. Lucia buns. They're saffron in the dough and it's uh, a sweet sort of sweet, sweetie yeasted bun. And we've done the experiments and then we enjoyed them with like warm, you know what I mean? Warm buns with fresh butter and all that niceness. That was the last thing I ate. So are these, are they savory? Then I'm no, getting they're like sweet a, buns savory. and they're, they're either in like a swirly S and they have this gorgeous yellow color because of the saffron that's been steeped yes. in the in the milk that's in the dough. Uh, they're very lovely, hilariously, ideally a Swedish Christmas thing, if you can imagine. Uh, so what's the last thing you ate, Mirella? The last thing I ate is actually one of my new favorite in a pinch foods to make. Tell me. Uh, and it's an olive omelet. It came about a little while back because I had a can, a half a can of black olives in the fridge. And I was thinking, okay. I love olives, but I don't like canned olives. I don't just eat any other olive. I'm happy to eat on their own, but I was mm-hmm. like, what can I do with this? Uh, so I asked the internets Yes. and, uh, it came up with, this is a Moroccan inspired omelet. So it's the okay. black olives in eggs. And then there's, uh, cumin. Uh, caraway seeds, tarragon, parsley, and paprika, salt and pepper. That's perfect. It's a really cool flavor combination. Yeah. And those are like a lot of the herbs and spices that end up being in your cupboard and you don't know what to do with them. Exactly. Right? Like the caraway. I always have eggs. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. So now I just always keep a can of olives in the, the cupboard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I just don't know what to eat and I've got, I mean, an omelet takes two seconds to it, make. Yeah. And then just have it with like a piece of bread or some crackers. So I'm a, I'm a little obsessed with this particular olive I like uh, that a lot. Omelet. Yeah. That sounds good. delicious. And I'm into that use of spice. Yeah. The, it's right. definitely a combination that I've, you know, that was completely yeah. new to me. Cool. Uh, but the only thing I had to buy was the caraway seeds. But now I have a bunch of caraway seeds. But now you're and, in uh, for the long. That's amazing. That's right. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, in our uh, beautiful season long focus on the COVID impact on our food system, uh, today we are very excitingly talking about food security, which is mm. one of my favorite things to talk about. Yes. This was, uh, this is intense. This is intense. It, yeah. And, I think, uh, you know, food insecurity is such a broad topic. I thought it might be useful to start by explaining a little bit about what food security is, right? Yes. Food insecurity. Because it can mean so many things. Yeah. 
it's an important piece. And I think from my experience and my work, it shows up different ways at the personal level and as sort of as a community or a nation, right? There's sort of different manifestations. So essentially though, when we think about food security, it is about a person or a community's ability to uh, have a consistent, regular access to good, wholesome food. Right. right now, I feel like there's lots of asterisks that need to be put on all those words because what is good food? What is steady access? You know, questions like this. But it is about the fact that people should be easily, be comfortably able to go, you know, to not have to travel too far to get uh, real, actual, nutrient dense food. They should be able yeah. to have the money to do so. It should be comfortable mm-hmm. and easy for them to buy food for themselves. And to some degree, they should have uh, both the equipment and skills and capacity to to cook food for them. You know what I mean? To, to actually do something with the ingredients and put meals on a table. It's, it's an economic thing. It's a geographic and sort of city planning thing. And then it's also like a skills and culture and tradition sort of thing. Uh, yes, I remember when we did that episode um, talking about uh, food deserts. Right. In the U.S. Exactly. And I had never occurred to me, you know, that there are lit- people who literally live in areas where they have to travel a very long time to even get to a grocery store. And between yes. them and that grocery store, there's like six McDonald's, four Taco Bells, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever else is there. Uh, precisely. Um, right. Or so they're stuck or they're stuck buying groceries at a corner store is the other, right. you know, the other manifestation of this is that which is just those are not. Those are not good, steady food sources. That's not nutrient-dense food, right? No. It is a lot of the food that just leads to more illness, uh, right? And, and, and poor, you know, health outcomes for people. Not to mention not a great selection, right? Right, Like a, right. a pack of ramen noodles every once in a while is, is a delight. But if, you, if it's the only thing you have access to and you're eating that every day, that's a, oh, inside. It's not enough. Not it's just not <laughs> enough, right? And uh, in my work, because I've spent a lot of time really on the ground working uh, to build community food security, right? So this is just sort of a boost up from the household, the idea of an entire community's ability to meet their food needs. Because now we start talking about potentially uh, urban agriculture, uh, right? What sort of city growing and, and, you know, community food uh, activities, what that looks like. Um, And that is always, in some degree, always connected to um, income, and, you know, all these sort of other relations of difference, because we start seeing things like communities, uh, like, you know, l- more vulnerable communities with less resources, less income, often mm-hmm. have less access to really good food, right? The, 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 yes. the best grocery stores or, the, you know, the stores with the best quality food are often not in lower income neighborhoods. And we have to start asking questions about why that is uh, and what that impact actually is on people's health and sort of long term life outcomes. Look, the thing that I feel needs real underlining here is mm-hmm. that uh, f- is that uh, boosting or promoting food security is about boosting and promoting human rights, right? Absolutely, for, for a really, really important uh, fundamental value is that this kind of access to good, wholesome, nu- you know what I mean, nutritious food is a fundamental human right. It's interesting that you should bring up human right because when you zoom in and look at who is most food insecure in Canada. You'll find uh, First First Nations. Yes. The statistic is 40 to 60%, depending on the area, with 15% of them severely food insecure. And and most of those 15% are kiddos up there too, right? Uh, A lot of the, you know, that population. Yeah. So First Nations, 
black people and single moms. One third, one third of single mothers are food insecure yes. in Canada. One there it is, right? third. It's crazy. I have shivers just thinking about, you know, the depth of what that reality is. It's not okay. And, uh, right. And for Northern communities, the number is an exponential jump. Uh, yes. From those of us living in the southern part of the country to when you live up north, your risk, your, your, your sort of guarantee of food insecurity is an exponential uh, jump. Yeah. And but and here's a I was just looking, you know, just looking through the statistics. And here's an interesting tidbit, which I think will uh, will spark some conversation. Yes. Um, so the, the province that uh, seems to have the lowest rate of food insecurity, with the possible exception of remote communities, which okay. for some absurd reason are not counted in the statistics. Um, <laughs> okay. Can you guess which province? Is least food insecure? Yeah. Which province is Quebec? Yes. Do you know? You know, uh, and that well, that to me, that uh, I will explain that as just the fact. Am I feeling? Can I can, can I give you my I guess? Love, yeah, 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 yeah. You tell me. Because I made to me immediately because I ju- had just finished reading one third of single mothers, so I immediately right. made the link with the fact that they have subsidized childcare there. Aha! Uh-huh. Yes. Right. Yes. So if I'm a single mom, very good, and I have to work, I'm paying you know like a tiny, tiny fraction of what people are paying in other. Yep. Uh, areas or you know if i'm at lowering for whatever reasons i need child care uh that's subsidized there i don't know that's my theory but what oh, are your, like it a lot. what was your explanation <laughs> i like it a lot um i think that to support that is the fact yeah. that there is a culture a food culture in quebec that is distinct true right yes. and i remember this of a few federal elections ago when the bloc quebecois uh had a really strong food sovereignty agenda as part of their platform Right. And when we talk food sovereignty, it's about a community's uh, control over their own food system and their own food source. Uh, right. Ah. Which truthfully is something that I cha- like I have my fist in the air advocating for food, you know, for food sovereignty uh, is, is where we need to head. Uh, but our friends at the block. Right. And I laughed at the fact that it was the one moment where I would align myself with the politics of the block. <laughs> <laughs> right because they're speaking some hot truth about food uh so i'm gonna guess that the the province with with the most articulated priority around food would also be the one that has the least amount of food insecurity yeah so in a minute we're going to dive into food insecurity in the pandemic but before we do i thought it might be useful to outline you know the factors that usually contribute to food insecurity because yes, this isn't yes, a yes. pandemic specific issue by any it's means it's not it's not at all it, it pre it's pre-existing right, right. and in so fact i think you mentioned yeah. to me there was like a huge there's been a huge increase in food insecurity in the years leading up to the there pandemic, has. right there has so look uh, here's the idea um in 2014 this is from the our friends at the world bank in 2014 uh food insecurity or hungry people around the world was 624 million of us in 2019 that number jumped to 688 million. Uh, so we're talking about a 60 million person jump in five years. That feels dangerous, right? Those yeah. are those are dangerous numbers. Uh, as it stands right now, currently 272 million around the world are or at risk of becoming acutely food insecure, right? And this acutely food insecure means that their life is in danger because of a lack of food. 
Wow. Right. So that's really those are those are those are dangerous numbers. So Mm -hmm. let's uh, I've got a little list here of the contributing factors. And again, as you said, these are things that existed uh, before the pandemic hit. So we're talking about socioeconomic conditions, natural hazards, climate change and pests, if you can imagine, were things that existed to push people into food insecurity. Right. Um, So and then. So that's talking about bad crops, right? That's talking about talking bad about crops. It's talking about uh, income inequality. It's talking about rising rising temperatures. You know what I mean? Both sort of all the implications around farming, and then there's yeah. sort of the blight uh, with with pests or infestations and things like that. That are that are. But and as you see, three of the four things we've listed have to do with agriculture and things that yes. happen at the production level. And the last piece, the socioeconomic piece, is really just about access and affordability. And and you know, equity, justice, you know, all those things are built into there. Right. And for the time being, I guess the main way that we seem to be addressing food insecurity is through food banks. Yes. Emergency food programs. We're talking food banks and dining programs. So it's meals that people are offered and hampers of food. Uh, that is how we are addressing the situation uh, currently. Right. And yes, there's lots of opinions, which we will we can roll into um, there's a lot of people who don't think that that's the right way to do this, right? There's some folks here um, at the University of Toronto who have some really strong ideas about the fact that what we actually need to do is shut down all of our food banks and dining programs and divert all of those resources towards advocacy for things like uh, guaranteed basic income and and other sort of uh, systems responses to enable people to just be able to buy themselves. Like subsidized childcare. <laughs> uh, for example, right? Yes. Uh, and Val Tarasuk is somebody sort of at the forefront of things at U of T. And one of the pieces, one of the a quote that I found from her, which I thought was so great, was that um, it isn't about how much money the feds give to food banks. The problem is that they are trying to address serious problems of material deprivation through ad hoc community charities. Right. right. And and it's a compelling argument. The fact that this is a this is a bigger system issue uh, and that the hampers and the plates of food are really just Band-Aid situations or, you know, Band-Aid approaches, uh, which I get. But at the same time, the, the stickiness here is that we're talking about food and ideally yeah. we, we engage with food three times a day. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and largely people who, who subsist on food bank food are often just, you know, it's one good meal that they get in. Uh, and how do you balance the immediate daily need, uh, you know, against a broader sort of advocacy for bigger systems change is, is where right. a lot of this gets stuck. Right. Well, obviously, you don't remove the food banks until the broader changes. Has, right. Has occurred, right. Well, some, some of the but thoughts I guess if you're are diverting the yeah. funds. Yeah, that makes sense. But I have to say, you know, it's very interesting for me to hear this this quote from you because it pretty much was the conclusion that I came to, Hmm. you know, in reading all of the information and in learning about what was going on with the food insecurity, you know, as witnessed by the fact that I just talked about the subsidized child child care is probably being a contributor. It just, to me that it makes sense, but yeah, I can also see the challenge for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a real difficult situation. And to think about what leads, what, Right. If if we are already sorting this out, because there are a lot of people that think that food banks and dining programs are just the solution. That's the answer. Right. The, to how we sort of handle charity or poor people or whatever. Right. They're like the system works and, and not realizing that 
that you know clearly a (laughs) band-aid totally it's clearly a band-aid how can you not see that uh agreed but some people just you know it's it's the this sort of charity mentality as opposed to uh thinking about justice and equity and human rights and we all should have the ability to to just you know all people want to do is take care of themselves and feed their families right this is a very simple human desire here Uh, and so that is it, it all depends on what your attitude is and what the priority you think is most important okay so now with all of this in our in the discussion let's zoom in on the pandemic and really talk about what happened uh, and what the food security sort of impact was with the arrival of lockdown quarantine all of this uh so let me guess ad- it all went away <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> wouldn't that have been so great sadly Uh, no no, so uh the additional stressors that we're sort of adding on top of the existing are reduced income and disrupted supply chains right this is about people who were laid off or or you know i mean all the various uh you know negotiations that happened but people lost income and we know that when income drops food is often one of the first budget lines in a home that gets hit by that but you know by that reduction uh, right because so you, you always say it's the first flexible that's it right your f- budgets, budget your first flexible past your housing budget which is not that you know you have to pay your whole rent or your whole mortgage food you have more flexibility so that was one piece and then the disrupted supply chains this is really the stuff we talked about previously about uh empty shelves on grocery stores and closures and just not being able to access your food in the same way um yeah so- and in addition to that, uh, you know, the food banks at the beginning of the pandemic were very much struggling because they were very low on staff. That's right. And I read that, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have the additional stressors of, you know, a lot of people losing their jobs um, and the, the supply chains, as you said. And meanwhile, certainly in Toronto, 40% of the food banks closed at the right. beginning of the pandemic because they just couldn't. They couldn't keep they up. Couldn't they run. couldn't bear it. That's it. Or they ran out of food is the other piece, right? They just, they had no more resources or, you know, and they had no more money to pay people to be there to do that work. Right. Again, the disrupted supply chains. That's so. it. That's it. So that's just horrible. Uh, now you found though, uh, so early food banks were struggling, but you found some really interesting uh, uh, stats about uh, what happened by the middle of the year last year. Yeah. Yeah, and this was uh, it's a, an interesting piece because what actually happened is that um, there were a lot less people using food banks right. for right. this period of time, uh, which would have been like spring, summer yes. of last year. And uh, they did some research into it. And uh, 90% of the, the people that they, they asked about it were uh, food bank employees and, and the like. They said that uh, very likely the reason why uh, and I'm guessing they, they must have pulled the, the food bank users as well. I'm going to guess so, um, sure. Yeah. Uh, 90% of them attributed it to CERB, which yes. uh, for those right. of us who are not Canadian is the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. So it's uh, some money that a lot of people were, were receiving if they had either had a loss of income or a reduced income. Mm-hmm. So isn't that interesting that it's, it's, suddenly it's everyone connected. has a little bit of money and they don't need... The food bank, I mean, that makes sense to me. And it really, uh, you know, again, supported 
the um, what was her name? Val? Val, Val Tarasuk. Yes. You know, his ideas that, you know, maybe if we had a universal basic income, right. we wouldn't need food banks. At all. It's possible. Right. Um, but here's another interesting tidbit. So so 30 percent uh, speculated that it might have been just because uh, of restricted movement, that there were sure. less people at the food banks just because of the lockdowns and things like that. But uh-huh. here is something that caught me by surprise and you're yeah. going to love. Fifteen uh, percent uh, of uh, people said that it was because of increased community support. No way. Really? Yeah. So they had uh, other oh, programs man. that that came up locally that they were able to avail themselves of, and oh. therefore they did not have to go to the food bank. Well, I mean, this is oh my like I have little sort of tingly feelings now just hearing that because it is uh, as difficult as this was and as desperate as it got for many, many, many people when the pandemic hit. We also saw incredible community groundswell. Right. People really reached out to each other. Uh, People really opened their wallets uh, to make donations uh, to support because a lot of people really understood what this meant for people who were already living close to or with food insecurity. Uh, And that's in we have numbers that say that uh, by December 2020, the number of Canadians um, who have who will make donations uh, will have doubled from 8% to 16% of Canadians to make some donation to a food bank or a food, you know, food based charity. That Uh, is so fascinating to me. You know, it's amazing. It's just really cool that, you know, the, the response people have had in this pandemic is to think, oh, there are people who are way worse off than me. Yes. And, you know, why aren't we hearing about, you know, these stories? This is, totally. uh, you know, it it almost makes you think that, that this doesn't exist when, in fact, there's been this, you know, between the these this increased community support and the increased number of people who uh, are planning to donate. I mean, it's it's the opposite. People aren't just thinking of themselves. Uh, not at all. And it's really, really beautiful to see this, right? There are there are so many glorious stories about people dropping food packages at their neighbors' doors or, you know, now knowing things about the people who live around them that they didn't know before. Uh, or just people seeing that they have the capacity uh, to be helpful to other people, right? Yeah. I, I had a little racket for a while where I was just delivering handmade cookies to an organization here in Toronto supporting seniors who are living in an isolated way in apartment buildings. Uh, but I had a bunch of little kids in my life baking cookies to send to these seniors and everybody felt awesome <laughs> right yeah. in that transaction because they were being taken care of and they were actively doing something helpful uh, right yeah. and our urge to be helpful and connect to each other really was uh, brilliantly displayed uh, during this time. It was lovely. It was lovely. On the downside though yes. as we go through our timeline I think it's important to mention that um, there was a huge uh, increase in children needing yes. uh, needing support um, in the fall of last year. That's right. And uh, household food security already uh, in Canada, if you compare households with children and without children, uh, in ho- households without children, it's 12%. Uh, and in households with children, it's 19%. Mm, so there's there it is. already that gap there. And I, it's, I mean, I'm feeling foolish, but, you know, I, it didn't even occur to me when the schools were closing that some of these children depend on the schools yes. 
for nourishment. Like I've heard of food programs in the U.S., but I didn't realize that we even that we even had that here. Well, I mean, we do and we don't, because one of the calls that uh, people on the ground have been making for many, many years now is some form of a national school food program, because we don't have anything mandated at the federal or provincial or, you know, or level. And so right now it's like little bits of money. Quite honestly, here in Ontario, uh, a lot of these programs started with teachers using their own money to buy granola bars to put something in these kids' stomachs, because a lot of these kids would show up with empty tummies but they are not able to sit and learn and pay attention right and you know they need things in their stomachs to be able to be calm and nourished enough so that they can pay attention to what's happening in class and so a lot of these like god bless them ad hoc volunteer and parent and teacher run uh operations there's some money you know that trickles down from the province and the municipalities but it is a grossly underfunded thing and to to really connect to the fact that one of the things that our kids were missing the most from school were the meals and not the learning <laughs> is really you know what i mean the meals was a sharper loss uh, you know, what I mean? it, was harder. it was a sharper loss than the education, unfortunately. Uh, and that is a, like the 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 danger that exists there persists. Right. And we just it's another bit of the fragility of the system that's been exposed. It is in the in the most recent statistic, 34 um, percent of people who use food banks are children and children right. only make up 20 percent of the population. So right. let's just think about that's disproportionate. This, right? Yeah. And uh, and so not OK. It, it really isn't. It really isn't. And uh, connecting to that with conversation we had in the previous segment about uh, food security hitting uh, black people, single mothers, uh, right, and people who are living, yeah. you know, in or with poverty, um, the 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 pandemic just sort of followed suit with that same disproportionate impact because we learned that people who earn less than thirty thousand dollars a year were five times more likely to get COVID than those making $150,000 a year. And this is easily explainable by things like um, the kind of jobs, you know, the less than 30K, yeah. those are not secure jobs. Those are largely part-time jobs uh, at the, at the you know, on the ground. This is frontline service work, uh, yeah. right? Which potentially then we have people who live uh, in a congregate setting, right? In a house with many other people, potentially an apartment with many people. Uh, they likely have to use transit to get to work. Uh, right. So it's all of these opportunities for infection. Right. Uh, uh, and that they are forced to go through just to keep the, you know, to keep the roof over their head, because potentially these jobs also don't necessarily come with yeah. uh, sick pay or, you know, benefits or bonuses or any of those sorts of things. And to maintain, you know, some semblance of food security. That's exactly it. Um, uh, that's exactly at the risk it. of their, you know, of their well-being. So that's. Uh, so it's like all of the things that were already a bit of a problem became much more of a problem. Uh, yeah, right? and Which, they don't seem to be yeah. getting any better from what I can see. The statistics this year are not any better than last year's. Uh, no. Um, with the exception that, it, you know, there do seem to be more donations um, and, you know, more community efforts. But, you know, it, again, it's a Band-Aid. It's not solving the underlying food insecurity. And with it's lack of helping. knowledge of exactly how long this virus is going to take to move through us, uh, although the spike in donations was amazing, a lot of these organizations had no idea how long they needed to make that food last. Right. right? How long they needed to make those resources last. That was the, the you know, that was the, the insecure piece of all of this. So I guess, yes, I guess 
that was just a, a one-time spike and now they're they're back that's to oh. that's exactly it um so i mean really what we're seeing here is a culmination of so many of the things we've been talking about this season right yeah. we're seeing impacts about what's happening on the ground on farms uh we're uh we're talking about employment standards uh once again we really need a call for resilience in our food system uh one of uh because the, the holes are identifying themselves all along the way one of the things i read that i thought was sort of ironically hilarious was a piece a quote that said reducing the global trade in food and plant material would also reduce the transmission of plant and animal disease right you're like ah right. of course of course, right? More resilient food systems, which is part of the, you know, what we're what we're calling out for, uh, includes more uh, less import, more local production, right? And when we think about the the dizzying degree to which we import and export food, the idea that there's transmission of a global pandemic happening concurrent, like it's it's a bit of a yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. So is that, I guess. Does that tie back to what you were saying about food sovereignty in Quebec? Definitely. Okay, Definitely, because they care right? so much more about what's grown there and what's produced there and supporting That's local it. that um, they're really cultivating that community. Definitely. Security. And the capacity for a okay. community to feed itself is the idea, right? Sense. And not be reliant on imports uh, or things like, you know, or other sort of other pieces like that. There are so many levels to this. Uh, very much, very much. Wow. Uh, but listen, what we know for sure, things we can advocate for, guaranteed basic income still remains, right? Uh, a smarter, better investment. Invest in people's ability to take care of themselves. Okay, Mirella, what have we learned? You know, Josh, know that, I mean, I've learned a lot of horrible things right. in uh, learning about this, but for me, what really stands out is actually a positive and is yeah. this fact that um, people have stepped up and this, uh, this community spirit that, you know, I just was not aware of in these yes. times where like all the news seems to be negative and it just... Uh, it warms my heart and it gives me, you know, like this renewed faith in people. Um, but more more importantly than what I learned, I'm super curious to know, Josh, because this is like something you know so much about. This did is, you learn? Yes. Did you learn anything? I did. A couple new? of important things. Okay. Uh, I did. Definitely. First, I will actually echo what you've just said. One of the things that became so clear to me was that our future has to be about uh, small, you know, regional cis networks of people who care about each other, mm -hmm. right? That's the future of this small networks of people who know who, you know, who know each other and care about each other. That's how resilience is going to be built, right? That's how we, that's how the best of us were revealed. We you know was, yes. was that, was that idea. So uh, I'm with you there, but as somebody who has kind of been screaming and yelling about this stuff for a while from the sidelines, it. um, so many of the things that that people who do the work that I do and who have been doing this work for a while, so many of the things that we've sort of speculated or hypothesized about have really come to life and been right. broadly illustrated. We talked about 
uh, the potential of service disruptions or what, you know, stresses on, um, right, on demands will do uh, at the farm level or how fragile our social, you know, our social net, our social uh, support network really is uh, and that we can't rely on it to actually bail us out or to, you know, or to hold us in a disaster. And we saw exactly that. Uh, the pandemic has proven this to be true and really brought them all out. Um, so right, as, like as a stress test of sorts. Definitely, definitely. And as difficult as it's been to endure, there's a certain like, there's I, there's a certain exhale that I have that we have been on the right track, that we have been yelling indeed about the right thing <laughs> and that this is, that we were right. Uh, there's a little, you know, I, a vindication just feels a bit more proud than I want to be about this, but I am reassured. That I that we have been focusing our yeah. efforts in the right Affirmed. way, and that this yes. and that this uh, that the arguments that we've made are actually legitimate and real. So, dear listeners, uh, in there's lots for you to think about. We've given you lots of information, but the call to action on this one is perhaps a little bit different. What we'd love for you to do is just take a moment to think of somebody you know, perhaps more casually and haven't seen in a while, and just check in on them. Send a message, uh, give them a call, maybe think about dropping a little package of something at their door. Uh, just reach out. Make a connection because I am quite sure uh, both people, you know what I mean, on uh, the, both the receiving and the giving side of that will feel so much more rewarded, connected, and maybe even more, you know, well-nourished at the end of it all. If you are enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram at HotPlatePod. Follow me at Virology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Original music by her brother. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>